Hello everyone and welcome to the Council of Elrond, where we discuss all things Lord of the Rings. I'm your host Johnny and I'm joined by your other host Dave. And today we have two wonderful guests who are going to help us break down the eighth and final episode of The Rings of Power Season 1. First, we have Harry from Daily Rings of Power, which is a Twitter page and a podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin, and it delivers Daily Rings of Power news, updates, images, and shares positive takes on the show in general. And Harry is also a self-proclaimed connoisseur of Celebrimbor memes. So welcome, Harry, to the council. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and let our listeners know where they can find you? Yes, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate you having me on, guys. I'm very excited to talk about the season finale. Um, you can find me at DailyROP on Twitter. Um, I thought it was easier than the full Daily Rings of Power. And then you can find my podcast on all platforms, uh, Daily Rings of Power podcast. And I will say, I may share positive takes, but I also share critical takes just to the, you know, let people know I'm not paid, at least not yet. Yeah, <laughs> Amazon, yeah, if you're listening... <laughs> My bank balance is getting low. I will take checks. Yes. Shill me up, please. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Join the Shilmarillion gang. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and thanks. We'll put all of Harry's links in the description below. But we are also joined by the lovely Dr. Sarah Brown, who is the faculty chair for the Lang and Lit MA program at Signum University, and who is also a lifetime Tolkien fanatic, and someone that we had the lovely chance to meet in London and not only share our thoughts on Tolkien, but as we discussed off air, we spent some time hungover at breakfast this mo <laughs> that morning. Well, like myself and Johnny were hungover, I should say. Uh, this was after the Rings of Power premiere, but you may already recognize Sarah's voice as she's currently covering the show on the Rings of Power wrap up podcast. So, Sarah, you too are very welcome to the council and... I don't know, was that a good enough introduction? Would you like to give your own introduction and let the audience know where exactly they can find you? I don't know how I top that. Honestly, that was a great introduction. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me on. Um, yep, so I'm Sarah Brown. I work for Signum University. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Aranel Parmadil, although I was considering changing it after London to Aranel Parmashill for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, and you can find Signum University on there at Signum U uh, on Twitter. Uh, and also, of course, the Rings of Power wrap-up. So uh, at Rings of Power wrap-up uh, on Twitter. And uh, I have to record for them later today as well. So I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone today with all my watching of uh, episode eight. Yeah, definitely, guys, go and check out that podcast. It's, uh, it's definitely one of the best ones out there. Um, so go and give that a listen as well. And of course, as always, we will leave all of our own uh, links and uh, things in the description of the podcast and in the description of the YouTube. And if you are watching us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and give us a like and a comment. And uh, also a huge thank you to all of our patrons and a special thank you to Jack Knightley. You have been told many lies of Middle-earth. So um, now with all that out of the way, we're going to get into actually today's episode. And again, I can't believe it's here. The final episode, we've seen it. Uh, all has been revealed. And we're going to go through the episode. I'm not going to go through chronologically, scene by scene, because that would we'd be here all day. We're going to just look at the main uh, plot points. And I want to, normally we start with kind of like maybe the weaker storyline and go through it that way. But today I wanted to jump in at the main meat and bones, which was the whole story in Eregion. So um, 
we finally get to see more of Keller Brimbor. He's not just in his little bedroom in his nightgown. Uh, we actually get to see him in the forge and, you know, in his realm, I suppose. And that was uh, really wonderful to see as well. So um, we get also at the beginning, we get uh, Galadriel and Elrond. They are reunited together. And um, what was your first takeaway from that? I'll come to you first, uh, Sarah. What uh, what was your overall view of the whole uh, Eregion part of this episode? Oh, it was interesting, wasn't it? Um, I'm still left with the sense that the elves are not kind of hanging together here. Gil-Galad wants one thing, doesn't want this. Celebrimbor is now going a little bit power crazy. Uh, Elrond's trying to get the balance between the two. Then in comes Galadriel, who's not even supposed to be in Middle-earth right now. Um, and everything, of course, shakes up. But it was... I really enjoyed this bit because... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to yell a great big I told you so about Halbrand because I told you so about <laughs> Halbrand. Um, <laughs> I've been saying he was sketchy for some time, but um, it's just the way in which uh, he insinuates himself into Eregion, into those moments with Celebrimbor, starts immediately with flattery the mm. Celebrimbor. Yeah. Um, and you can see Celebrimbor going, well, yes, actually, the yeah. Celebrimbor. And he loves it straight away. So um, I thought that, you know, there, there are one or two things about the whole Eregion thing that are still not quite the way they are in the lore, if you like. This making of the three rings is out of kilter time-wise with how things were actually made with the um, all the rings of power. But uh, overall, and I'm sure we'll get into the nitty gritty. Um, I thought that, that this was a really good chunk of the episode. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I also want to say as well, before we get into the meat and bones of this episode and this review, that I think myself and Johnny, especially after we finished watching this episode, we kind of had to say, right, this isn't lore accurate at all. And we knew there were so many inconsistencies, but we were like, we're just going to try and forget the lore and leave that in Tolkien's works and just be like, let's enjoy this show for what it is. It's it's totally different. They're making decisions that they could, could have changed and made it more lore accurate. Like the whole timeline of the rings, like why was it the three elven rings first? They're just little things that they could have changed around. And I, I don't care at this point. I'm just like, I'm just I'm just in it for the ride, see where it takes us. And I'm just going to enjoy it for, for that way. But I'm, I can understand people's anger online and people are very unhappy with what the showrunners are doing. But I think at this point, yeah, we're just going to take it at its mm. merits and enjoy it for mm. what it is. I completely so, yeah. agree. One of the things I've been saying is that the showrunners have to hit lots of different levels of audience um, from yeah. people who know absolutely nothing about Tolkien, maybe even haven't seen the Peter Jackson films. They know nothing. They've got to be drawn into the story um, all the way up to folks like us that know the law really well, have read Tolkien inside and out, etc., etc. All of the layers in between, you've then got to create a story that will interest all of them. So sometimes sticking utterly to the lore isn't going to make for the kind of story that will draw in those that know nothing. Um, and I'm actually okay. All right. So some of the lore has been moved around, shifted around, whatever. Mm. 
But this was never, they never pretended that this was going to be an accurate de description of everything that Tolkien wrote because he didn't write enough about the Second Age to make that possible. So sure. I've been enjoying it as a show about the Second Age in which they have been filling the gaps. Um, and and in episode gaps well. Yeah, and as we saw very, very clearly at the very beginning of episode one, we had that prologue scene. And then immediately there was a large black screen where it said based on the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I think it's very clear and very important to take that based as the important thing, not just completely. This is a like, adaptation. A, this is a very, yeah, but it's not. This is an, a very accurate adaptation or it's a putting his work just into a directly into film or into TV. It, it is based on it. So they're, yeah, I don't know if they're going to say loosely based, <laughs> but uh, it is based on it. And we should remember that. So, um, Harry, what about you? Um, let's just think about Galadriel, maybe, especially at the beginning of this. We see her meeting uh, Elrond again. Uh, we see her having conversations with Gilgalad, with Celebrimbor. For me personally, I think that I've enjoyed Galadriel. I enjoyed her more in last episode than I had in the whole season, really. And then this episode, I think she started to sound more like Galadriel that we that we know and that we are more familiar with. So what was your take on Galadriel in this episode? Yeah, I will answer that. But first, I just have to say, so good to get more Celebrimbor. So good to let Charles <laughs> Edwards stretch his acting chops. I've been saying since day one, he was going to be fantastic. And I think the only downside this season is that he just hasn't been given enough to do. And I think this episode, you started to see that breadth of range you started to see that kind of arrogance that ambition that pride but also that vulnerability that Charles Edwards talked about in his first interview but I will get back to your actual question <laughs> um I have loved Galadriel the whole season I have always felt that what they're going for based on uh the showrunner's comments based on things we've heard is this idea of what does it do to someone to survive so much trauma and grief and loss and then have to find purpose in a broken world. And I really felt that the purpose of Galadriel's season one story arc was to go from channeling all that pain and grief into anger and violence and struggle and instead reach a place where there could be some healing. And then, you know, in a way, I think that's part of the reason they put the forging of the three elven rings here, because they want to make that transition to the idea of preservation over destruction and healing over violence and so uh i mean i've yeah no i've loved Mordoveth clark's performance the whole season um i never really had to get acclimatized to it i just loved it from the get-go but i agree with you in the last two episodes we're starting to see the fruition of all that hard work and that both vulnerability and wisdom you know it was very mm -hmm. telling to me when they gave her the line to say these rings should be for the elves alone without you know any outside influence it's that recognition she now has having gone on this journey that she's not going to be able to perceive every threat coming and so there needs to almost be this preventative posture rather than this, this aggressive posture so yeah i absolutely loved it and it's only made me more excited for the next four seasons of her journey yeah very very cool and i i just think that like you said there you touched on that her wisdom is kind of coming through now as well and she has that conversation just even the what she's saying just the the i don't know the the sentence structures that she's using are starting to sound a bit more tolkien uh she spoke to elrond about she when she jumped out of the boat and she said like she only she had to just swim and then there was this 
mentioning of swimming going like that being like a just carrying on and things i can't i didn't write down the exact quote maybe i should have done she she <laughs> talked about how she felt like she was drowning and then it was almost foreboding the later scene as well with how she Brand, was drowning yeah where she was <laughs> where she was drowning they've yeah. used that a few times they used that in the last episode as well with duran when he said my friend is drowning mm, yeah yeah and i want Running to pull him theme. ashore mm. yeah 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 and I think there's, I think there's also an interesting point there that you know when, uh, when we first kind of saw those images before the season, season had even released of Galadriel being on the boat to Valinor, a lot of us thought, well, you know, is she going to go but then be sent back? You know, is the storm going to be induced by the Valar to say, you know, your work is not done? Because we know, depending on which version you go with, there's some debate about whether the ban on Galadriel was lifted at the end of the first age. And obviously when she gets to the Fellowship of the Ring, we have the line about, you know, I have passed my test. And so I like that they're setting up this idea that her work is ahead of her because her work is to be that counterbalance to Sauron, is to preserve the light of the Eldar in Middle-earth. So I like that we've reached there at the end of season one, because I know some people were perhaps just a bit tired of seeing Galadriel be brash and angry and full of, mm. you know, um, vim and vinegar. But uh, I loved I loved the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy where it's ended up. And especially the symbolic melting of Finrod's dagger. That was a scene that I mm. think held great emotional weight for me and it, yeah. it, it definitely moved me yeah no I, I agree i agree entirely actually when they said to her uh first off we need we need gold and silver from valinor i thought they were going to ask her for some of her hair uh or something uh that was she my gave me three that was my initial thought because i remember the actress uh morpha clark she came out and said that uh in her hair they had real strands of gold and silver um in oh, order really? to yeah did you not hear that no i never heard oh, that yeah. no that's cool yeah so they use that to, to to make Galadriel's hair shine in the way that we know her hair should sort of just be this um, otherworldly type of thing. It's not just, oh, yeah, she's she's a blonde and that's it. <laughs> um, but then we also, uh, yeah, I agree with you completely, Harry, as well, when you're speaking about just the fact that we didn't get enough Charles Edwards maybe in this uh, season one. We got more of him today and that was fantastic. And I really enjoyed as well when he had that first walking into his little workshop and he hears someone just pottering around inside mm. and he's like, who goes there? Reveal yourself or something. And this whole thing of revealing and Halbrand, it's just, just, it's been going on the whole series. So finally we did get a kind of um, uh, an answer to that. And we see them having that initial conversation. And again, Sarah, you touched on it as well. That I, I wrote that down in my notes as well. As well, I just said Halbrand uh, flattery and mm. Ke Anna Kellerimbor loving it. And it was just, just again, the whole way through the season, I've just been like, every time I see Sauron, I'm just like, that's Sauron, that's got to be Sauron, it definitely is Sauron. Yeah, but it was the the real point in this episode where you figured out, for us, figuring out it was Sauron when he goes, reveal yourself. It's like, who's lurking over there in the shadows? And then you see the silhouette of Halbrand, and I was like, well, this is where the camera is slowly panning mm -hmm. towards the left. This is for the Tolkien fans to realise who this Anatar is going to be. Mm -hmm. And of course, they didn't use the name Anatar, and that was, at that point, both myself and Johnny kind of looked at each other and were like, okay, so they're not, go we're not going to be introduced to a new character in the final episode called Anatar because that would be ridiculous for the mainstream fans, but I'm okay with it. Like they have changed it completely. They've kept everyone guessing who Sauron is going to be. And it's been someone who's been pulling the strings and manipulating people in a way, but it's, it's, it's not Anatar. And he does 
mention later that he's had many names before and I thought he might name drop it then but I don't know they might not have the rights so (laughs) they might not have the rights as well so that's another thing that we shouldn't get too caught up on that but again I wasn't too bothered that he hasn't been known as Anatar I think that line of I've had many other names was probably enough um, for me so that was fine Um, what about you Sarah what what was your opinions in general of did you enjoy being inside Celebrimbor's workshop Oh, I did. I did. Um, I think that we got to see um, a lot more about Celebrimbor and who he is and what he wants and uh, what motivates him. Because, yes, he is motivated to do what Gil-Galad wants him to do, which is to ostensibly save the elves via the Mithril and all that sort of thing. But actually, that's not everything for him. In fact, that's almost like a byproduct, I feel, from what we're getting. It's a byproduct of... um, of what he truly wants to do. He mentions, you know, in one of the first scenes he has about Feanor and the power of Feanor and how he feels that he hasn't actually um, had that kind of experience of creating something of power like um, Feanor did. And here is his moment when he can indeed do that. And when he's telling Gil-Galad what he thinks is now possible to do, he doesn't talk about saving the elves at all. He talks about a new power mm. and the, this new power and what it can do. But he doesn't mention saving the elves. That's not actually what he's primarily focused on. What he's primarily focused on is actually getting to create something of power in the way that Feanor did, which, of course, should be flying all sorts of red flags straight mm. away. Anyway, he's our own. <laughs> I mean, many of us have said it, but the Silmarillion, its subtitle is Feanor No. So <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if Rings of Power should be subtitled a Celebrimbor. Oh, no. Just stop <laughs> it. No, no. Oh, no, you better don't. But, I, um, yeah. It, oh, sorry. I thought it was very interesting as well that his conversation with Halbrand, the moment he said that opening line, the thing I tweeted out because I make the terrible mistake every week of trying to tweet along and then I manage about four across an hour because I just get so engrossed. But I said, why are you chatting him up, Halbrand? Because immediately I was like, oh, it's happening. That was the moment where we went, okay, if you're on the fence, I'm sorry, but this is happening now. Yeah. And what was mm. interesting to me about then every successive uh interaction and moment with Celebrimbor is you can just see the way the words are creeping under his skin. We first get that moment which is meant to offset Galadriel with the idea of uh, power of the unseen world and a power not of the flesh but over flesh but then you later hear him almost parroting Halbrand and whether or not they use the Anatar name later on I do suspect that whenever Halbrand returns to Eregion, because I think they very much set up in this episode with Galadriel's line about if he ever returns, then we must not treat with him. I think they are setting up for a uh, Halbrand visits Eregion part two. And I (laughs) do think that he may even, you know, take a moniker of Lord of Gifts, even if they don't use the Anatar styling. Mm. And so I just like that it's that mix of flattery, gift giving, manipulation, and one of the things Charles Edwards said in his very first interview was he said, Celebrimbor's prideful, he's arrogant, he's ambitious, but he's also a bit naive, and that makes him vulnerable to predators. He used the specific word predators. And I love the idea that the moment Halbrand walks into that forge, he sees his next target. Maybe yeah. he already realizes that Galadriel is no longer his path to power, 
and he spots his new target and he's on him like a limpet fish. It was incredible. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, it was. I think it was really well done as well. That um, I mean, Halrand uh, or Sauron, however we want to call him now. I think his his plan was masterful and his manipulation is incredible. The way he just is, he's always saying, you know, oh, I, I'm just, you know, I might sound like a fool now and these types of things. And then he also, the advice that he gives Keller Brimbor, where he, which he calls it his gift, is, you know, to maybe mix the mithril with another alloy. And he kind of gives the advice, or he, he kind of gives that, you know, in my experience as a low man, you know, we didn't have these precious metals, so we had to make them, you know, and he says something about mixing nickel with iron and that would make the blade uh, lighter and stronger. And, and it's kind of like, oh, I believe that, that like, you know, uh, someone com coming it. from a, yeah, I believed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a low man uh, to quote, uh, to quote Gilgalad and uh, the other guys in Numenor that they would need to try and stretch these precious metals. So it was very believable in the way he did it. But of course, as a viewer and hearing the word gift coming out of someone who we all were already suspected to be Sauron, we were like, well, that's pretty much that. That was the final thing. Because I think, yeah, in that scene, it kind of, we saw him pottering around and that's at the beginning of that conversation with Caleb Brimble, we were like, oh, it looks like it's going to be revealed here. And then as soon as he said the word gift, we, we just kind of looked at each other and we were like, yeah. yeah. That's I, I just want to point out as well for any of our listeners that don't know what we're talking about when, when we're talking about gifts. Anatar literally means what Lord, Lord of, of Lord Gifts, of gifts hmm. which is an alias that Sauron used in the, in the book. So just in case someone didn't know what we were talking <laughs> about. But I also want to ask both you guys, what, in your opinion, is Hal? Like we know what Sauron's plan is in in the in the in the I was about to say in the scripture, <laughs> in the in the book. But like, what is Halbrand's plan here? Because myself and Johnny were discussing, and it seems like he's kind of just going with the flow, and he's just doing things. He just arrives in Eregion, and does he know about creating rings? Does he want to create rings? Because he seems really all for it, but then he ends up leaving and they end up creating the three secret rings or the three elven rings, the ones that he's not to have spoiled in any way at all. So um, I suppose, Sarah, maybe mm -hmm. we'll come to you first. What what do you actually believe is going through Halbrand's head? Because in this episode, it just kind of makes it seem that... Like he's winging it. He, well, he's winging it, but also the only thing he wanted was Galadriel the whole time and, you know, her power and the two of them to rule together. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting take on things, mm. but it's got nothing to do with rings. So, um, yeah, how do you think the rings come into play? Okay, well, um, first of all, Sauerbrand, as I think we're going to have to term him for this episode. Um, I can never read Sauerbrand I, I, again. <laughs> Sauerbrand, yeah. I'm not 100% uh, sold on the idea that he somehow took a wound um, mm needed him to have elvish healing we didn't see that happen uh he was just found upon the road with this wound um i think he's been manipulating everything from the word go uh and in fact one of the things that we can do now that we've seen all eight of the episodes is actually go back and see all of the times he said anything because everything he said in this episode could be taken in lots and lots of different ways, definitely in two different ways. And, you know, when you go back over it, I'm sure we'll see far more of that. But I think he wanted to go to Eregion because mm -hmm. this was um, something that he actually managed to get to happen by somehow getting this wound um, that, 
meant that he needed to be somewhere like Eregion. Um, he is quite sharp enough to know that Galadriel will take him to Eregion if that looks to be a, a thing that, uh, you know, that, um, that he might need because he's got Galadriel fooled at this point. Hmm. As to the rings, um, I don't know, but... I now need to rewind and go back to the beginning and start asking questions like, how does he end up on a raft? And who are those people he ended up on a raft with? What happened there? Um, he seems to pick up on this idea of, um, you know, creating something out of Mithril. And he does seem surprised when he sees Mithril. He doesn't seem to know what it is. Um, but very, uh, we know that Sauron uh, in the lore is very taken with Mithril and wants all of it for himself. Um, but it's almost like he just sees opportunities and then seizes opportunities. Mm. And I wonder if he wanted to be in a region um, just to see, if, you know, what he could do, what he could manipulate here. And this was an opportunity that fell in his lap. Um I'm not sure he went there with the idea of let's create rings of power. Okay. Um, I don't know. I could be completely wrong about that. But he certainly immediately sees the potential of what Celebrimbor is doing. Um, he immediately starts talking about how, well, you know, if you mix the mithril with something else, you could come up with something smaller that would actually be uh, easier to to carry, and that's why we need two. And as Galadriel says later on, um, one would corrupt, two would divide, mm. three would actually unite. So why does he want two? Two would divide. Well, Maybe that's what he's after. I, I, I was speculating that... Oh, we lost uh, Harry. Uh, hopefully he'll be back in a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I was speculating that maybe um, he wanted to before his initial plan of trying to corrupt Galadriel and to mm -hmm. have her um, rule by his side and maybe have... Right, one um, each maybe, huh? One ring yeah. each? Sure, sure. Um, it looks like... Uh, one second, we'll get him back in. Ah, there we there go. He is. Sorry about that. Uh, it's just one of those days. I've had three hours sleep and then my laptop decided to crash. So we're doing well. Um, uh, right. Should I... Are we, are we still talking about Anatar, hopefully? Or yes, no worries. Or... no worries. No <laughs> worries. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. It's all fine. It's all fine. We were saying that um, the the whole thing of the three rings being decided upon and initially where um, Halbrand came to Galadriel uh, when, she, when they were by the water and he said to her, um, we've actually discovered that it's going to be good to make two of these things. And we were saying it's a possibility that the two rings were uh, his plan to give one to Galadriel and keep one for himself mm. and for them to for her to come and join him, basically, which he gives her that speech again later on in the kind of mind warp when they're on the raft again together, which was kind he, of cool. he seemed to be very he was awfully excited to reveal that there was two rings. It was almost like yeah. he was coming down after someone's just given birth and he's like, there's another one. We've got two now. Uh, that's the, the vibes I was getting off uh, Halbrand in this. But I, I do have another kind of follow-up question concerning the rings. <clears throat> so obviously these three elven rings are being created first, which which is strange to us. Like maybe there's a reason for it. I'm sure there is or there will be. But where are the rest of the rings going to come into play? The seven for the dwarf lords and the nine for men. 
who's go Johnny suggested to me earlier that maybe Sauron's just going to make those in Mordor, but it kind of negates the whole reason to get to Eregion. Come back and sack Eregion. Yeah, yeah, sa- yeah sack Eregion, but also like manipulate Celebrimbor. Well, more he could do and- that anyway, because he, he obviously, we know he wanted to get the three, so, but yeah, we, yeah. we don't really know what's going to happen now. Are the elves themselves going to go ahead and make the other rings that end up being given to the, the dwarves and the men? It's all a bit just up in the air now because of the order that they've kind of changed things. And, but I also was wondering, can either of you shed any light on this question, which is, um, what is the general plan in terms of why uh, suddenly they think that getting Gil-Galad to wear a crown, that's going to now suddenly help all the elves as a race, as opposed to, it seemed like, which we saw the thing with the leaf and the Mithril being in close proximity to the leaf, it seemed like this actual theory that uh, Mithril does shine a light on and cure this sickness, uh, that is actually true. It's not just something that we had speculated that may have just been made up. Um, so obviously Mithril in proximity to some people cures this disease. Is this just, uh, um, is this something that will cure if, if the king of the, if the leader of these people is okay, will everybody else be okay? I just, I, I couldn't really get my mind around that. I'll come to you on that one, Harry. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a moment where we just have to say, okay, much like Isildur saving Kemen from the exploding ships, this is a device to get us from A to C. And don't pay much attention to B, because fundamentally, you know, we were never going to see this crown. We were never going to have elves across Lindon taking baths of Mithril. You know, that was never going to happen. Um, And so it's one of these things where I've gone, you know what, I'm just going to say, okay, they have told me that Mithril was going to save them all. I'll believe it. Fine. Like, don't don't ask me anything about it. I'll just believe it. Like, you've told me it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to happen. Because yeah. the whole time I was going, okay, where we are getting to is Mithril doesn't work on its own, so we have to make an object power. Oh, we're going to make a crown. Oh, no, we're not going to be able to make a crown. Hmm, what about something smaller? And that's mm. what I liked you guys were saying about the whole um, two rings, one for Galadriel, one for himself. And I was reading this morning one of the first interviews Charlie Vickers has done since, obviously, the reveal. And he gave some really interesting commentary, one of which was that I know a lot of people have said, what's this tension between Galadriel and Halbrand? Is it romantic? Is there some genuine affection? And he basically said, if there is attraction, it's cosmic. For Sauron, this is a deception. This is a power play. And he says, you know, while he might offer her in that moment the chance to rule beside him, that's because he sees that as his most direct route to power. And he says, you know, I think at the end of the day, Sauron is still going to want to be ruling alone with one true power for himself. So I think that's the way to read it. And just to quickly talk about the other question you mentioned, I think what was really interesting about the fact he's gone back to Mordor is that we're going to get probably two parallel plot lines. One, him trying to reassert control over Adar, the orcs, Mordor, so that he can, you know, I think we'll even see Barad-dûr being constructed next season. Mm. Um, But then in parallel, at some point, he's going to come back to Eregion, to Linden. He's going to get rebuffed by Elrond, and perhaps Gilgalad will just, you know, delegate that to Elrond because Elrond's had this warning from Galadriel. But then what I suspect might happen with Celebrimbor is he's riding high after creating these three rings. He is feeling like he is Feanor come again. But then this Halbrand's gone, and he keeps trying to make new things. And you know what? It's just not working. He keeps trying to make his next great work, and it's not right. It's not right. 
And so he's feeling this sense of like, oh, you know, I fluked it and I only did it with the help of Mithril and Halbrand. And then look who walks in to help him. Mm. And so I think what we might get is Celebrimbor and his other smiths trying to make more rings of power and just failing over and over again, or they don't work right, or there's nothing quite working. So I think that's what they're setting up for season two. But it is large speculation at this point. I have to totally agree with that. And of course, one of the reasons why Celebrimbor is going to fall for this, um, apart from the fact that you're absolutely right, he's going to be all about wanting to create more items of power and finding that difficult. I bet that's absolutely right. Galadriel chose not to tell. I mean, okay, uh, on the raft, we get some really interesting kind of up-close shots of uh, Halbrand, and he's shouting in her face, what will the elves say when they know that you were my ally? <laughs> what, what are they going to say then? She chooses not to tell them. Not even Elrond, who she says, oh, you've just got to trust me. That's quite a big trust. But I think yeah. you're right, Harry. I think that Elrond will rebuff him. He doesn't know why he's rebuffing him, apart from the fact that Galadriel has said none of us should treat with him, and Elrond is trusting Galadriel. But Celebrimbor is going to be much more desperate to have the help of Anatar, or whatever he's going to call himself when he comes back. Uh, and I think that that is going to lead Celebrimbor into becoming part of the making of the rings for the men and the rings for the dwarves. And I, I think that's how it's going to go. And that, I think, then leads beautifully into uh, what will be Celebrimbor's end game when he suddenly realises what it is that he has been part of. Uh, and, he, you know, if he goes with the lore, it's, he's going to end up as Banner Boy at some point. So I also... No, no. I I was wondering as well, when you mentioned about the fact, you know, Galadriel chooses not to tell them, I wonder whether they're taking as inspiration that part in the Silmarillion where Galadriel's with Thingol and Melian, and she sort of tells half-truths, you know, they're asking about what led the Noldor to come back uh, to Middle-earth. And I wonder whether they're kind of drawing on this idea, because obviously I think a lot of people who've only seen the Jackson films or perhaps have just read the trilogy see Galadriel in a bit more of a one-dimensional way, whereas actually, you know, she has got this arrogance, she has got this pride. And hey, if she needs to protect herself and arguably her family, then she's shown that she's not willing to, uh, you know, tell a story and omit some details. So I wonder whether that was a little bit of an inspiration for them as well. That's a really great idea because you're right. She ch she chooses not to tell Melian about the kinslaying um, because obviously it's such a terrible thing. So she just fudges the issue. Oh, you know, we fancied a little holiday in Middle Earth. That's it, really. Hi, nice to see you. Can I stay for a bit? Um, but she doesn't. She doesn't reveal all these terrible things that have happened and the reasons for coming across and all that kind of thing. Uh, and um, we've been saying all along, haven't we, that Galadriel of the Third Age is not the Galadriel of the First Age and clearly not the Galadriel of the Second Age. She has to grow into the great elven woman of wisdom that she is in the Third Age. And it takes a lot of experience and tragedy and all those other things to bring her to that point where she becomes that Galadriel of the Golden Wood. Um, but what we're getting here. And one of the reasons why I agree with you, Dave and Johnny, that Galadriel of um, episode seven, I really actually enjoyed seeing that is because there we had character development. 
So instead of being um, angry Galadriel, suddenly she's counseling Theo about, well, no, you shouldn't think this way. You shouldn't say these sorts of things. This this is the route to the dark side, my young Paduan. Um, <laughs> mixing my stuff there. But um, I, I think that Galadriel's choice here is going to come back to haunt her again. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that uh, we mentioned earlier that they could have followed the lore more directly in terms of just, for example, to go back to the um, the way that the rings were forged in terms of the uh, which ones were done before which other ones. We know that the the ones for the um, sorry the ones for the men and the ones for the dwarves were all done before the three, and the three were done kind of almost in uh, in tandem with the one, um, and. So there were, like they could have done that, I suppose, and it wouldn't have been very difficult maybe to follow that. But they've they've changed it for whatever reason. We'll probably find out uh, that there will be a good reason for that. But I think all the time they're making small changes. They are also and also the time frame that it took them to make those rings. It seemed like they did it. Well, I think they said they're three weeks. And there was a quote which uh, Celebrimbor says we're doing something in three weeks, which could take three centuries. And I think there's small details like that, which I was like, oh, three centuries. It was 300 years in the book that it took them to prepare for the creation. They, I remember we joked about it on a previous podcast that we said it's like a, a 300 years masters in ring making uh, or something like that. So it's like I think there, there are lots of little nods like that to say to people like us, don't worry, we know that this isn't accurate. We know what's going on. We are changing it. So that kind of small things like that make me feel like... I feel like I'm going to, I'm not sure, but I'm going to trust them for the moment and just see what they're doing. Obviously, we know, as we've already said before, it's not a faithful adaptation. It's not going to be page for page, but we kind of just need to say, look, they're going to try and make the best story that they can for television with what they can. Also, I think in the meeting, when we see Gil-Galad basically turning down and refusing this idea, I think that was kind of a nod to Gil-Galad refusing Anatar and saying like, look, this is like where Keller Brimbor was really pushing this idea, come on, we need to do this. And Gilgala was like, no. And then him and uh, his herald Elrond are the two people who don't want to treat with Anatar. And they kind of say, no, now then that was my decision that I'd made up. And then immediately in the next scene, Elrond comes running back after Gilgala saying, wait, maybe we should. So uh, <laughs> I kind of immediately went back on that thought. But in the time I was like, that's really good. Oh, wait, no. Um, so there's lots of little things like that throughout the show. So it does give me a little bit of faith, I think. And so that was the next scene that I wanted to move on to when they are having that meeting all together and they are um, discussing the crown. We've already picked up on a few of the points, but they're discussing the idea of giving Gilgalad a crown. Um, oh, can and, I just say as well, yes. during that scene, that was, myself and Johnny replayed it a few times where Galadriel says... I wouldn't be standing here otherwise. And Gilgala just turns and says, you shouldn't be standing here at all. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we found that so funny. But we kept replaying it. And we were like, yeah, you, you tell him Gilgala. What Gil does Gilgala say later to Elrond? Oh, he was just dropping bombs. Uh, he was. What is oh, that? it was when Elrond says, you know, I deserve that. Or, or, no, I am owed yes. that. And Gilgala says, you are, you are owed. owed. I don't know what you Benjamin Wolf's doing. Nothing. I love him. Yeah. But he's doing his best Alan Rickman at times, where he's just mm. speaking all through the bottom lip, you know, yeah, you are yeah. nothing. You and I love yeah. it, but it's quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Elrond Perotto. So what, let's let's just jump onto that one for a moment. Uh, I'll uh, I'll stick with you for a moment, Harry, and see what were your feelings, uh, What like not just for today's episode, overall of Gil Gallad so far, because I've been left a little bit 
I remember seeing him in the first episode was episode one or two I can't remember when the first ones came out and I liked what I saw of Gilgala but since episode one or as one or two I haven't been massively on board with his character and his his, just his mannerisms but I think I again even in this I've only seen this episode once so I need to kind of go back and watch it again I definitely found some of what he said hilarious and I was laughing at those, some of those kind of like digs that he was giving to these other guys but uh, and as I said his decision to kind of say look it's too late just pack up your things everybody let's go to Lyndon and uh, let's get out of here I, I, I thought that that was kind of a nod to him saying we're not going to accept uh, this Anatar's uh, his proposal so I was kind of coming to I'm starting to get on board with those things but uh, what's your opinions on Gilgalad so far? So I wrote uh, in typical Harry Daily Rings of Power Twitter account style, I wrote a tweet thread about this a couple of weeks ago because everyone was kind of saying, oh, you know, I don't like the way Gilgalad's portrayed. And I, I stopped and thought about it and I thought, how much do we actually know about Gilgalad's ruling style during the Second Age? We know he was a great warrior king. We know he rebuffs Anatar. We know at one point he asks for help from the Numenorians, And then we know he later um, obviously forms the last alliance with Elendil. Apart from that, your guess is as good as mine what his kind of approach to dealing with Eregion, dealing with, you know, the dwarves. There is very little in the text. And when Benjamin Walker, who plays Gilgalad, was interviewed by um, uh, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Maggie Park the other week, he even said that there is an ambiguity at the heart of Gilgalad. And it almost drips down from this idea that we don't know who his, his father is. And from that ambiguity, all the other ambiguity flows. And I almost wonder whether they were trying to give us that in season one by not letting us in on what he's thinking and almost keeping us behind this screen. But I will say that I think the gamble may not have played off because I come away from season one not really having an opinion on him. I don't like him, but I also don't dislike him. In the same way that Durin, King Dorin is right in his scene with the with the younger Dorin, Gilgalad's pretty close, you know, if we accept the whole Mithril plotline, Gilgalad's yeah. pretty close to right at this point. So it's one of these things where it's it's like, I don't dislike him, but I just haven't been given enough meat on the bones. And whereas Celebrimbor, I always knew I was going to enjoy. And then thankfully I got these great scenes at the end. I almost feel like we were ne- we were missing that for Gilgalad. We I'm- needed a set of scenes with him at the end. Yeah, sorry. I just want to pick up on something that you said there that I just had my own realization now, which is the fact that I think one of the reasons that I was not very uh, keen on the way things were going with Gilgalad's character was the fact that I just totally disregarded and didn't believe any of the whole Mithril saves elves theory. I thought we were going to find out that that was going to be a lie. So that for one, maybe one entire week, when Gil, maybe it was even two, it was weeks, two weeks, when Gilgalad proposed, this is true, Elrond, and we have to stop it. For those two weeks, I was just there in, my, in the back of my mind thinking, Gilgalad's a fool for believing... This ridiculous, completely uh, bullshit but an theory. Fool. Like, uh, an honest fool. An honest fool. Uh, yeah. Turns out uh, the real fools were inside all of us all along. Ah, <laughs> real fools. So we're inside us. the writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I take that back. I take it back. Um, yeah, so sorry. That was just something I just picked up on there. So maybe that's kind of, if I go back and watch it now from start to finish, maybe I'll realize actually 
those two weeks of my like decisions, my opinionated thoughts on how Gilgala doesn't know anything. Your I don't like the way I don't like the way that they're making him seem like he's uh, a bit um, naive in this sort of situation. He's obviously being tricked by someone else whispering in his ear. But no, it turns out he's been right about everything so far. He sent Galadriel away, and he's like, no, well, maybe we just need to send her away because we actually need to stop whatever she's doing. If she had left, she wouldn't have met Halbran, and maybe that would have been the correct decision. Um, so maybe he's been right all along. Yeah. I still think that that could be a lie. This whole thing of elves being. <laughs> I just hope so. Oh, well, I, I think it could. Like, I don't know how they're going to resolve this issue. Yeah. Like maybe before, like before episode one started, Halbrand or someone was in there just like sprinkling some little. Um, poison onto that tree yeah. in Linden just I don't know he got one of his minions dude can I point out as well that maybe the reason that we're not liking Gil Gallad's character so much is he hasn't had a single wardrobe change in all of season one he's been wearing that like that he's so bed basic. throw the whole so yeah the golden bed throw all season so yeah, I said I that know. last episode. I was like, I mean, it's nice. I like it, but I like it. Hang if on, you like Homer Simpson. He opens his wardrobe. It's just yeah. it's just like all He's gold. He's very though. He can carry off gold lame. That is for sure. But you know, neither a brimble. Yeah. Sorry, Harry. No, no, I was going to agree with you and say my biggest complaint was that Kellabrimble was like I I didn't hate the green, you know, kind mm-hmm. of. Through, you know, <laughs> I didn't hate it, but as soon as I saw the smithing outfit, I was like, Yes, give yeah. me more of this. I went a little bit, you know, stir crazy on Twitter talking about Were this. Were you hoping but... to see him shirtless at any point? <laughs> Listen, you know, I'm all in support of fan service that services me, so yes. Um, <laughs> but I also think that I would like to see in season two that as his arrogance grows, that's reflected in his <laughs> wardrobe, that we start to see more gold. Starts hitting the gyms. Yeah. No, it's not. As his arrogance grows, so does his abs. (laughs) Oh, this is this is close to Kellabrimble slander, and more importantly, it's close to Charles Edwards slander. But um, no, no, (laughs) I I loved it. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. At at the premiere, I think I was like almost most taken aback by Charles Edwards. I was just like I was speaking to the other people, and when I when I when I met him, I was like, oh my god, Charles, can I just shake your hand? I was like, Johnny requested to shake his hand. I was like. Maybe uh, he goes and raids Gil Galad's wardrobe. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. tries on a little of that gold lame. Yeah, this this actually fits me really well. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, my king. This is just that green moon. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I think his his forging outfit was it not just a leather apron over the top of the moo? No, it was a. So he's got this kind of green shirt. I, I'm going to sound like I've spent far too long looking at this. You really I have, have, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, people who know me will not be surprised. Agree. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, he's kind of wearing this green shirt. He's then got these uh, kind of forearm wraps in a different kind of fabric. And then he's got the apron, but he's also almost got this like. It's almost like an extra uh, breastplate over the center of the leather apron. So it's almost like this kind of weird layered look. And then he has this gold, um, I'm not sure if it would be a torque or more of like this medallion set around the hem of the collar, uh, around the collar. So you really pay attention. And, <laughs> and there is this beautiful gold medallion that he has hanging down, yes. which I commented on when it was released. Because I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, you're playing around with hot metals, hammers. Why not have a piece of very fine jewelry? But if that isn't Feanorian, you know, kind of style, then I don't know what is. 
Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have spent too long looking at it. I admit it. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> right. Okay. So move, moving on from wardrobes, uh, <laughs> we should probably talk about also just I want to mention in that scene when they're having their little meeting, their little council on what to do, crown, rings, where to go. Um, I just, again, the music has been just non-stop perfection pretty much through this series and there was one part where i think gil gallad was saying something negative like no this isn't going to work and like elrond just butts in and just he says something like one sentence and in that one sentence just elrond's theme cuts through the music and then it cuts back out again and just is like it's just mm. so um perfectly weaved into the the underlying theme that's just there in the background the whole time and um, people that listen to us will know that we just always oh, were going on about the music way too much, but it's great. It's class. It so, is class. Um, yeah, they've done that fantastically well. Can so, you go on about the music too much? Ben no, McCreary is absolutely amazing. I'm loving absolutely. the music. Thank you. Good. Yes, I'm glad we've got people after our own hearts uh, here today. <laughs> That's fantastic. So um, we may, we'll probably talk about the music again later on. I just wanted to pop that in there while we're in the scene. But um, we also then see, uh, as we touched on earlier, um, Celebrimbor quotes actually Adar, and he says that uh, it's a new kind of power, not of strength, but of spirit, not of the flesh, but over flesh. And this is the power of the unseen world. And that's where there's this light bulb going off in Galadriel's head. And she's like, wait she, a minute. She's like, I've oh, heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was kind of quite well done as well that when she had that realization. And she was like, wait a minute, where did you hear those words? And I said that to Dave actually earlier on while we were watching it. And uh, I think what you said was really good because I liked how Keller Brimbor, she asked Keller Brimbor, where did you hear those words? And he said like, oh, I because uh, I, I said oh he really reminds me of Bilbo in the scene where he seemed to be kind of forgetful and he was like oh I think I think those are my words and I think and then Dave said I think that's actually showing the cleverness of, of Sauron hashtag Halbrand again the manipulation he, he's convinced like, that mm. he thought of this himself it's almost like Inception, Inception. Oh. oh my god <laughs> jinx <laughs> yeah, there you go. so yeah he put he put that idea in his mind so uh, that was kind of well done as well I thought that was really cool and I also had another thing where um, Gilgalad said, like, you know, it's too late now. The leaves are basically since the explosion, since the eruption, the leaves have been falling steadily. And I got this very dramatic image of Beauty and the Beast with like the last leaf when it falls. That's the moment when we're all going to be doomed. So the I was final like, petal. <laughs> the final petal. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Anyway, moving on from Beauty and the Beast. Um, what was next? Gilgalad, uh, Gilgalad and Elrond when he says, You're owed nothing. And he says, it is a, a fool's hope, Elrond, mm. merely that. And we also said, picked up on that, uh, uh, you know, a fool's hope, which, which Gandalf says to, to Pippin uh, earlier on. And then obviously Elrond replies back and he says, um, hope is never mere, not even when it is meager. And then he says, or have you forgotten your own counsel? Which I thought was unnecessary to say that line afterwards. I thought it was a little bit bitchy of Elrond to, I thought if he just quoted back to him, you know, Hope is hope is never mere, even when it's meager. I think Gilgalad would have had the realization himself to kind of go, that was very well done. And he was like, but have you not forgotten what you said to me? You know, <laughs> so I thought that was maybe a little bit unnecessary, but maybe just for the, 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 the people that were watching, maybe that was for our benefit as well, if people hadn't picked up on that. So um, I thought that was quite cool as well. Um, yeah, just to break in there, let's not forget that Gilgalad has been not particularly pleasant to Elrond. You know, um, on a sure. number of occasions, um, uh, look at that moment a couple of episodes ago where he says, 
Elrond a Perithel in the, in that you are just a half elven. I mean, this idea of just half elven is a bit odd anyway, isn't it? But then the you are owed nothing. Oh, well, thanks a lot. You know, mm -hmm. I've done everything you've asked me to do, but I'm owed nothing. I've written um, all your speeches. Right, exactly. You'd be nothing without me. You owe me last month's wages. <laughs> Right. But I just, you know, maybe there's a little uh, of irritation in Elrond there. Hang on a minute. You know, you, you know, you speak Elrond to Elrond is me. so gracious, isn't he, as well? The way yeah, that I mean, he, yeah. He casts I, shade there, but in a very nice way. Mm, yeah. He is as kind as Summer, you know, some might say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm loving oh, this portrayal yeah. of Elrond, by the way. I absolutely oh. love him. I think and, he's wonderful. And I think you're right. It was weird when Gilgalad said Perithel like a slur. It was, it really took me, I was like, it was kind of half like a father using your, you know, or a mother using your full name and you'd get taken back. <laughs> but one of the interesting things I've heard Robert Aramayo say, and this I'm more interested in, I guess, than Gilgalad, you know, kind of almost demeaning him with it, is that what they really wanted to explore with Elrond is this sense of he's arriving at this moment without an identity and without a purpose. You know, he's got this great legacy to live up to. But while he ha is counted among the elves, perhaps does he see himself as just an elf or does he see himself within this lineage, within this great kind of legacy to live up to? And I think what's really nice is seeing... Whereas in episode one, it seemed to me like, you know, Elrond wouldn't say boo to a goose around Gil-galad. By episode eight, he's actually pushing back and refighting for what he believes in. So if you want to do a small bit of character art, look at how he talks to um, Gil-galad in episode one when they send Galadriel away, you know, servile, just kind of, oh, I get to work with Celebrimble. How lovely. I'm a big fan. His, his uncles raised me. I'm not going to mention that, but that did happen. Um, and then, you know, pushing back at the end of the season. So, yeah, but I agree. Robert Aramayo, just chef's kiss. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I think that's been the, the general consensus from pretty much uh, everyone I've seen uh, online. Yeah, so, Elrond and Dora and everyone is just saying they're stealing the show every time. Yeah, we oh, put it's up a... We, romance. It's we, we, we put up a poll, I think, maybe a couple of weeks ago saying which is the best on-screen relationship so far. And we had... You know, Anatar and the Orcs. Uh, Adar. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Adar. Adar and the Orcs. We had Nori and the Stranger. We had a few different like on-field pairings. But we knew what was the winner. And we were like, yeah, we know what's going to win this immediately. And yeah, it was uh, Elrond and Doran. So that was cool. Um, and anything else Anything else you want to say there? Uh, I think Halbrand came out as Sauron in this episode. Not at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, moving on to... Uh, yeah, so then we said that obviously Galadriel starts to become suspicious. And then she uh, has that... Um, scene where she tells the person, uh, the the assistant elf, whoever he was, can you please go and look into the records? And then Halbrand shows up, and again he's playing this whole coy sort of, oh, I'm just so amazed that I'm here, and I can't believe it. I'm working with Killer Brimbor and these types of things. And again, it's it's like in his voice, you're you're like, I believe, I believe him. You know, it's mm. like even though we're like pretty, like it's pretty much confirmed that we know he is Sauron. But it's still, he's so, the way he speaks, I've really started to grow on Charlie Vickers portrayal as well. I think he's doing a really, really good job. I wasn't sure of his character initially, but I'm really, I think he's very convincing in the way he speaks uh, now. So I've really, I've really enjoyed that. And um, he, uh, Galadriel says to him, uh, you know, okay, you saved me, I saved you, our scales are balanced. But he says, um, I'd all but given up on, uh, on myself, but you believed in me. 
and you pushed me to heights that no one else could have. I'll never forget that and I'll see to it that no one else does either. And he whispers that last part in her ear as well. And again, that was like beautifully delivered, I thought, in my opinion, and the way he's kind of just saying something very nice, but also making her realize that um, he like no one's going to forget that it was her that helped him get to where he is now. Yeah, he, he um, hammers that point home twice. Mm. So he does that. And then again, when he's on the raft in Galadriel's mind, basically saying that what would the elves think if they knew I was your ally this whole time? So this is kind of like twice. Your alloy. Your alloy. <laughs> this is twice he says it in the episode where he's like, basically, what would the others think? I will let everyone know. Um, mm. Don't worry, I'll see to it that everyone knows that you got me to where I am now. So she's like, okay, thank yeah. you. Also, I just wanted to make a note that in this scene as well, the Bear McCreary music in it, you, you get to hear the Halbrand theme, the kind of, you know, the Southlands scratchy violin thing, but you hear it really high pitched in a minor key and yeah. it was very evil and Sauron-esque, but... It was on our second on yeah, our rewatch. Yeah, we watched when it back. We, yeah, the one that goes. Yeah, but it was changed to minor, and it was like really up on the up on the, the, mm. the high strings, and it was really kind of scratchy. And uh, yeah, we were like, good. "Ooh, that was that was interesting." The way they so did well that. done, bear. Well done, bear. Good, good man. man. Bear. Oh, yeah, fair play to you. So, um, what else? Then uh, we get a quick scene then of their forging. They're together, Celebrimbor and Halbrand, and Halbrand just. He's never short on good ideas. He's like, maybe we shouldn't force them. Maybe that's not that's what we're doing wrong. We need to kind of just, you know, coax them, together. Coax them in, just coerce them in and be like, go on, go on. You can Light go. a scented candle <laughs> and get them to do their bits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so we didn't see that romantic scene of the, the, the bonding of the metals. <laughs> but, uh, well, we did see that. And it was actually great. Uh, where we saw the meter being added into the other metals. As you mentioned earlier on, I think it was you, Sarah, that mentioned that the the, the the smelting of the dagger as well, which is really, really um, just poignant. And uh, I don't know, it was really heartfelt as well. This thing that she's been carrying along the whole time, that was the one thing that she r- resisted giving up as well on the ship to Valinor that she was just like, she really struggled to let go of it then. And then she ultimately grabbed it and dived off the edge. So now she's finally, there's no going back from this decision now. She has... It is gone, that dagger. So she's like, let go of the past, I suppose. So, um, kill it if you have to kill it. Uh, and then we get the big, um, final Sauron reveal where they are having that conversation. And that was again, um, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed just the way. Now, I, I was gonna, I also said today, earlier that I thought that the way that they did it, I was expecting more of a sort of, um, breaking bad sort of reveal where, um, the DEA agent is sitting on the toilet and he's reading the book and Hank. he realize Hank, yeah. He realizes that, oh, this guy is actually um, Heisenberg. And that I think that cuts and that's like the, there's a season break there and you're just stewing on this information all the time. So I thought it was quite fast. I didn't say, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it, but I thought it was quite rushed almost the way that um, she she starts the, the seeds of doubt are sown in her mind. And then within about 10 minutes, she's having this like, you know, confrontation with Sauron and like, okay, now I know that it's definitely confirmed. So again, I probably would hate if they had like sort of just teased it at the end and we had to wait for a whole uh, other season. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm hard to please. I can't, I'm just like, I don't know if I like it this way or the other way, but um, what was your opinions on that, Sarah? Uh, did you enjoy the Sauron reveal? Do you think that they could have done it better? Do you think it was perfect? What was your overall opinion? 
Okay, so first start, I thought before the episode started, I thought the one thing that we were going to get in this episode was the Sauron reveal. Um, I thought that they really had to. I've commented on a number of occasions about the way in which they're using or have been using rather a mystery box kind of narrative structure. Uh, and the problem with that is that you kind of feel like you're watching some kind of crime fiction or mystery movie or something like that. And this is not supposed to be that. So I wanted the answers to at least some of the big questions. Uh, and the Sauron reveal was one of those. Of course. Sorry uh, to interrupt for a second. I want to maybe rephrase my question, which was that I think the Sauron reveal was imperative that we got that in this episode. I just think maybe it was almost, in my opinion, slightly rushed how Galadriel discovered that in the same mm -hmm. moment as I thought the audience, the audience, we could have discovered it. Of course, I would have been very upset if we hadn't figured that out by the end of this episode. But I, in my opinion, I thought it was, it felt a little bit rushed that we find out uh, at the same time as Galadriel. And it's, uh, I just thought that was maybe a little bit fast. Now, I don't, I'm not going to say I disagree with it or I thought it was bad, but uh, I want to get your opinions on that. Not just that we get the reveal, but that Galadriel also gets the reveal. No, I, I was coming on to that, actually. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, no, um, I, I thought that we as the audience would get it. I didn't know that Galadriel would also get it. Um, and I do think they crammed a lot into one episode. I wouldn't have minded if they'd stretched the reveal over at least a couple of episodes. Um, and that, you know, we got to know before Galadriel got to know so that we could then have seen her dawning understanding of what's coming, even though we figured it out kind of thing. Now, we do... I mean, those of us who know about Lord of Gifts and that kind of thing, we do figure it out before uh, Galadriel. But there's a lot of people who wouldn't because they don't know those sorts of uh, minor lore details, if you like. I think that they really did shove it all into a small space and I would have liked it to have been stretched. I wouldn't have been unhappy with nine episodes in this series so that we got the reveal in episode eight. Um, and then it carried on over because we actually got a lot of big answers in this episode. So not just, and we'll come on to obviously, not just the Sauron thing, but also the stranger. We also got quite a lot more about him. We don't know exactly which wizard it is, but, you know, we have been given some huge clues. Um, so we did actually get quite a lot. We didn't need to get all of that in one episode. It could have been teased out a little bit more over a couple of episodes. So I thought that was a bit of a shame, really, considering we've built up over the entire season to this moment where we get to find out certain big mm. things. I agree. And I just think it was, I agree, I think it was a little bit rushed, a little bit squished in. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly my feelings as well, that it would have been nice for us to get the realisation. And I mean, I was pretty much... I was 95% sure before today's episode, but to get that like confirmation for him to to basically say the name Sauron or Anatar or one of those things. Uh, and then for maybe even, as you said, to have an episode break another week. And again, I, I don't know why this season was eight episodes. Uh, again, it just seems like I don't know what the, the need was to, to squash it down when I thought it was initially going to be 10 um but i definitely would have ha been happy with nine or ten episodes and mm. to be able to space that out a little bit more also we, we finished the episode we we're like oh we didn't get to see anything else with the dwarves we uh we yeah. did, i didn't realize that last week that was going to be the end that was their season finale yeah the balrog was their season finale so 
I didn't I didn't realize that at the time. If mm-hmm. only I had known. Um. So uh, yeah. Um. I wanted to move on to one more thing as well. When we get that reveal, we see the Sauron. We've seen how he's a master manipulator, Halbrand, and he's been manipulating things from the very beginning. He's been, as you said, Sarah, and I agree with you that maybe he's been manipulating from the beginning, but maybe he's been just opportunistic and he's just saying, okay, maybe this is actually the way to go and he's going with it. So I don't know if they're showing us that he has this master plan of them being rings all along, but he's just kind of like, as every step progresses, he kind of goes, oh, actually, this is a really good idea. And he's just faster and smarter than everybody else and here we actually get to see some more of his powers where he kind of plays these crazy mind games on galadriel and enters her mind and i thought that was very interesting as well um what did you make of this harry when he uh, sort of takes her out of uh, the real world brings her to valinor where she's he's very he's jedi like yeah jedi mind trick where mm. he's uh, he inhabits Finrod's body and uh, then he brings it back to the raft, all of that thing. What was your take on this? I mean, I loved it. Um, I'm a sucker for any kind of, whether it's science fiction, fantasy, any kind of battle in a plane that are we really there? Are we not? Are we in a physical dimension? Are we in, you know, a kind of spiritual or psychological dimension? You know, it's got that slight horror vibe to it, which I really appreciate. And something I'll say is that I think what sold it, it could have been very goofy but it's really made by three performances. Obviously, Galadriel's the constant throughout it, but where it really starts to work is in that moment where Galadriel reveals the broken line lie that she's found. And there's this shift in Charlie Vickers' whole posture. His shoulders move, his face changes a little bit, and the next time he responds to a piece of dialogue when he gives the line about, you know, I was awake before the first breaking of the silence, Mm. something like that. It's even a slightly different accent and tenor. It's a slightly deeper voice. And so that sells you on it initially. And then when you get to the Finrod scene, I don't know whether it was just makeup or they might have used some VFX, but there's something slightly just off about Will Fletcher in that scene. His hair's a little bit ruffled. There's something about the lines around his eyes. Even his ears seem slightly more jagged and pointy. And that could just be, I need to go back and compare with episode one. But Mm. the way he speaks, and I almost wonder whether they got Charlie Vickers to record the same lines that Will Fletcher was going to do and then found a way of melding them or had uh, Will Fletcher kind of almost parrot the intonation and delivery. Um, And then the final scene on the raft, I mean, I think what we have to talk about is that gorgeous shot where the camera spins, rotates, flips, and suddenly we're looking at the reflection in the water, you know, going back to Finrod's point in episode one, the lights reflected in the water are sometimes the brightest. And that shot of the silhouettes, and it was just one of those moments that sends chills down your spine. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is that building of tension, the storm, the moment we get the close shot on Halbrand's face where his eyes dilate and the pupils become slits. If you oh, look man. carefully, they've done some VFX work on his teeth. So they're becoming jagged as he screams in that last few frames. Yeah. And then to have the smash cut to Galadriel drowning, it actually gave me anxiety seeing her, you know, be suddenly submerged. And I just thought that was, it was one of those moments where one thing that I don't think has been talked enough is how they found three very impressive directors. J.A. Bayona, you know, wonderful director, A Monster Calls, um, 
the the film about the uh, the impossible, another great film. But Charlotte Brandstrom, the last two episodes, uh, Wayne Yip. I mean, just really inventive directing. So hats off to them. Completely, completely. That scene, uh, I agree. Chills. Uh, the uh, look at me. Is it that? The look at me. Well, all, yeah. I was going to say the scene where we see the camera flip around, we see the reflection, yeah. and it's even like she's looking into what could be hers as well and you could see Galadriel's posture and then the camera flips around and the posture of the reflection is her shoulders back hair flowing and she she looks really really powerful and then it cuts back to her in reality and that's not her posture at all so it's just it's this lie that's in the water and as you said that's been teased from episode one from Finrod's uh, mention of the the reflections in the water are sometimes the brightest and so it all ties back beautifully to that and i think that that's um you know it's always good when there's a big important quote at the beginning and then they actually you know there's the payoff uh, later on so i think that that's quite uh, i think that was beautifully done um while i was watching the scene however there was just something in the back of my mind that was niggling at me all the time and this is not a, a this is not a, a nitpick of the scene i thought everything was beautiful but we spoke to will fletcher and uh the actor who plays finrod and he told us oh, yeah. uh, he told spoiler. Us, not a spoiler but he told us uh he's like that's not the end of my character and so we Im- immediately thought like as in after episode one he said that's not the end of me i'll be back basically and so we immediately thought oh fantastic there's going to be more flashbacks we're going to get more uh you know valinor before but now i was like oh so what we are going to see more of finrod or this actor playing finrod maybe this is the only other thing that maybe this is what he was referring to when he told us that so yeah he was um, sauron playing yeah Finn so now. he's sauron really <laughs> so i was like i was like oh i really was hoping to get more flashback scenes and so i was a little bit disappointed at, at that point but i was definitely not left disappointed at the actual scene itself and i thought that it was uh really incredibly done and yes as you pointed out as well harry the the focus on the eyes the way that they kind of slit and became more Sauron like or maybe red and bloodshot cat like I suppose there was a lot of that done we get to see that later on as well actually um in one of the final scenes which we'll speak about oh we could just mention it now the very final scene which is cut where we get to see uh we get a zoom in on the three rings and then we get a zoom out as well uh which was that was cool and as we zoom out those three rings they kind of turn into this eye and then that turns into um, Halbrand's eye when he's looking at uh, Mordor. And we can see the reflection of Mordor in his eye. But if you look very closely, as it's zooming out from his eye, you get this little slit in his eye. And it's, it's it looks like the eye of Sauron in Halbrand's own eye as well. Mm. Along with, all, there's in his eye, you can see his eye, Sauron's eye, and you can see the reflection of Mordor. So it was just so much crammed into that, like one small uh, eye. And it was really really incredible that little visual yeah the whole the visuals in this episode were actually stunning Amazing. Like from the yeah. from the raft scene to your first glimpse of mordor in its proper decrepit state um oh there's so many so many cool things just the mm. the rings themselves beautiful when we talk about the rings they were so cool the rings were awesome they were so nice yeah yeah, they were amazingly done. Also, I really, really enjoyed when they were doing the forging of the rings. They used the same 
mold, the same little uh, thing that they had in the very beginning in the Fellowship of the Ring, where Galadriel, with her voiceover saying, it began with the forging of the great elves of power, and it shows them pouring this uh, molten metal into these kind of uh, mold things, which were the exact same ones that they used in this moment as well. So I was like, oh, that's uh, a really cool little tip of the, tip of the hat. So um, just all of those little things, I'm just such a, any little Easter egg, I'm like, ooh, look at that. That's really cool. That's great. So uh, that was great. Also, um, we, we can talk about the rings in a moment, but just uh, I wanted to go back to when when Finrose was speaking and he he says basically that Sauron was seeking power to heal Middle-earth. Again, I really liked that they were going down this route of Sauron and maybe even Halbrand. He does seem like he's a little bit conflicted and he just, his opinion of himself is that he is trying to heal Middle-earth and he is trying to, you know, put it in order. And then later on, when Galadriel is speaking to Halbrand or to Sauron on the raft, she says, he says something about, um, healing middle earth and she says to him heal or rule and he says i don't see the difference mm. and that's very much what we should believe sauron that his opinion is so i thought that was very very cool as well um sarah i'll just come to you on everything we spoke about there just to get your opinions on that in case you had anything that you wanted to jump in and and say uh, yeah, just to take us back to the whole eye thing, um, when they poured the molten um, gold and silver from the dagger into oh, yes. that bowl, um, and then they dropped the mithril in, mm. it looked again, it looked like a fiery eye. Yeah, that was um, another visual I meant to mention as well. Yeah, that, that yes. So they were, <laughs> they were doing that from that moment. And I think that's a little bit of a warning that although these rings have been created just by the three elves there together and, and all of that, um, that it's not necessarily still the best idea to have them mm. because once you concentrate your power uh, into an object, then you're actually putting life force into that object and you, then you become reliant on that object. Um, and that, of course, teases the, the one ring because making it actually was not a super good idea in the end. Yes, he was able to um, rule the other rings, not the, the elvish rings, obviously, but rule the other rings. But to do this, he had to put an essence of his own life force into the ring. And when the ring was taken from him, well, you know, that that didn't have the best of effects on him. So is this such a great idea anyway, um, mm. channeling power through an object in this way? And I, I just wonder if having that visual there was um, part of that, if you like. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a huge gamble. It's a massive gambit for, for Sauron to try and pull off. And as we know, he he was overconfident in that moment as well. And he kind of had the opinion that if somebody else gets their hand on the ring, destroying it is just an impossibility because it was just, it's so full of corruption and that corrupting power will corrupt basically any spirit in his opinion on, on the earth. So, um, which yes, just it was back quickly. That of course is exactly what Galadriel says. One will always corrupt. Yeah, mm. that's right. Yeah. Mm. Very, very good. And I thought it was nice that she said, like, you know, three gives balance. Then, And I was like, oh, yeah, it's like a, a nice three-legged stool, I suppose. <laughs> Two-legged stool would not be very, uh, not very good to sit on. So, like a um, back. <laughs> um, also, the quote from Hal Brandt when he's on the raft speaking to Galadriel, he says, I would make you a queen, fair as the sea and the sun, uh, stronger than the foundations of, of the earth. And, I'm, you know, just again, you're like, oh, I know that. I've heard that before. And then um, she says that you would be the Dark Lord. And he says, no, not dark. 
um, together we are uh, together we will control Middle Earth and are to save. Sorry, he says together we will save Middle Earth. I can't read my own writing. And then she says save or rule, and that's when he says I don't see the difference. And he also says that Sauron or that he lives because of Galadriel. So again, he was kind of putting that pressure on her again that if she goes and tells people, they're going to realize that uh, it's kind of Galadriel's fault all along. So. Um, can I just break yeah. in there? Because there was the another characters. line there that I think was really important mm -hmm. where he says that you will bind me to the light and I will bind you to power. Oh, now, yeah. of course, this whole episode is called Alloyed. And that's exactly what this is, isn't it? Mm. It's the alloy of two very different things coming together. What he foresees in that is one thing that will be very powerful coming out of it. Um, the binding of opposites, if you like. So I think this is uh, it's all part of this, um, this theme going on through this episode of alloy, of bringing together two things to create one thing that is much more powerful if you like so i just wanted to bring attention to that line no really really good really important actually that's a uh, really well picked up on as well the the alloys are not just for the metals but also maybe just the joining of these things and binding them there although just the word bind has been used quite a lot in the series one. and then uh, anytime you hear bind you're like uh, in the in the darkness bind them uh, so um yeah uh, always like to hear good binding um <laughs> and then um now also, we said a moment ago that um, when she decides for some strange reason not to tell the others about uh, about the finding out that Halbrand is Sauron, quite a strange decision. And also then Elrond finds the scroll showing that the, the lines of kings in the Southlands had been broken. And so he kind of puts two and two together as well. And I kind of, I think Dave and I had mixed opinions on this, how when he comes in, he's holding the scroll in his hand and he's <laughs> holding it down by his side. Does, does Galadriel in that moment see that he's holding it, work it out and realize, okay, he knows? Or does she, because my first viewing, I thought that she just didn't see it. And Elrond was kind of holding it by his side to sort of hide, uh, it. hide it. And Dave said, no, I think he just, she could see it. And then she realized, okay, now Elrond's in on the... They definitely uh, share glances. And he he's looking at her. And he's like, I know that you know something. She's like, do you know what I know? Yeah. And she's like, mm. oh, I, I feel bad. And she looks down to say, like, I feel I, I regret my decision. <laughs> right. Uh, Harry, we'll throw that one to you. What, what, was your, what was your takeaway from that? Yeah, I think there's a Galadriel's looking at the rings and at Celebrimbor and they're sharing this look of awe. And Elrond walks in and he shares a look of awe. But then as the kind of moment settles, mm. Galadriel looks, I think, to her right to look at him. Whether she notices the score or not, the more important thing is they're sharing a look that says, I know you're not telling me something. And she's sharing a look like, I know I didn't tell you something. Um, I Can think I just where say they... as well, though, after oh, they show, no, no, they show Elrond and he's, exactly what you just said i know that you're not telling me something and gladwell goes i know i'm not telling you something and then it just Kilbr it goes to Kilbrimbor. and he's like this is like my birthday and yeah. christmas all at once he was just having a there's great a huge day. smile on his face and he's like <laughs> sorry yeah. harry he, uh, good no morning. no you're right uh Kilbrimbor, i mean charles edward's facial expressions throughout this episode like when he's pouring the molten metal that is a man who loves his craft and is obsessed with creation and I love the, the the way he was lit through all those scenes, often reflected by the flame and the fire. Um, anyway, I'm getting derailed by Charles Edwards again. What a surprise. Um, <laughs> but Elrond and Galadriel, what I think they're leading up to and what I've suspected since we got the old, uh, the old Celeborn reveal last episode 
is that Galadriel's journey next season is going to be heading out of Linden again, but this time maybe not on a path of war or anything, but I think she may be going, I think this might be our route into meeting more of the Sylvan Elves, uh, meeting more of that kind of broader diaspora of Elven, Elvendom in Middle-earth. And so I think there might be this acknowledgement that, okay, yes, we made the rings, yes, we saved the pesticide problem with the Great Tree, but I do suspect she's still not going to be welcome in Lindon. And I don't think this time Elrond is necessarily going to vouch for her with mm. Gil-galad. And so I think that might be where we're leaving it, where, okay, Elrond's not necessarily feeling comfortable with Gil-galad and he's really trying to cuss, uh, trust Galadriel, but I think he's just, he's realizing that he might have to start putting himself first in these situations. Um, so I think it's really interesting. They could go in lots of directions for those two characters in season two. Um, and I'm very interested to see where they go. Mm, don't the rings have to surely travel outwards so that yeah. the other elves in Middle Earth can, you know, get their Mithranium and so that they don't fade well, this away? Was, this was one of the things. Yeah, this was one of the things I was wondering, and I'm glad they didn't because the the beautiful visual and no dialogue of going from the rings to Sauron is the right way to do it. But my thought process was the way Celebrimbor was looking at those rings. I'm wondering whether he's going to say, actually, you know shouldn't I keep one of these? You know, isn't this kind of like, I I made these, mm. shouldn't I have one? Mm. And so I wonder whether we'll ever get that addressed or just start season two with perhaps Elrond. Maybe that's how they'll introduce Círdan is the very first yeah. scene is yeah. Elrond going to, uh, the, you know, Mithlond, the, the Grey Havens and giving Círdan the ring and we'll see Gilgalad's got his and we'll see Galadriel has hers and has left. And I don't think they're going to touch on the whole, you know, Celebrimbor's, you know, I used to have a thing for you, Galadriel, um, that we get in Unfinished Tales. But I do think it's probably a thing where Elrond's going to say, well, I'm taking these rings for the High King, maybe thinking that he'll get one of them. And then Gil-galad says, oh, no, actually, the second yeah, ring Kyrdan. will go to yeah. Círdan. And Elrond's like, ah, OK, guess I'm not getting paid again this year. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. You Off to see Durin. <laughs> you are owed no rings, Elrond. <laughs> yeah, no money, no rings. <laughs> um, and then to kind of finish off the, um, the this whole Aragion story, uh, we get this final shot, of course, that we've already mentioned that we get that transition of the rings to the eye. I thought it was beautifully done. I thought the visual effects in this episode were stunning. Mm. And um, we said it looked quite like Mustafar and Anakin that's Skywalker. That's exactly it. Yeah, we said it looked like I, it, it, Halbrand. He had like his his hood there. I was like, he looks kind of like Anakin arriving at Mustafar. Uh, for all of you Star Wars fans out there as well, and just I mean, the visual appearance of Mordor is just uh, spectacular. I, I couldn't believe it. I just had to pause it and just stare at the screen. For, for a couple of moments to see the lightning flashing, the smoke bellowing out of Mount Doom and just kind of creating these ripples of smoke up in the up in the air to form this ceiling of smoke to completely cover uh, the, the, the sky. It was just uh, so amazingly done. And the music that came in then as well, which Dave and I both said we got kind of vibes from the end of the two towers where hmm. the hobbits are looking out at Mordor and we get Gollum's song to come in. And this song as well, which uh, props to Fiona Apple, the the singer on this song, uh, written by uh, Bear McCreary. Uh, and J.R. Tolkien. 
And J.R. Tolkien, yes. <laughs> Lyrics by Bear McCreary, they were original. Uh, so um, the music was written by Bear and it was sung by Fiona Apple and she did another incredible job, similar to Gollum's song, where it's beautifully sung, but it really makes you feel uneasy inside and it's kind mm. of like, it's sort of it's haunting, sort yeah. of off and you're like, oh, I, I feel like, I don't know what's going on yeah, here. You're not yeah, at ease listening yeah, to it. Really thrown off. So um, Sarah, I'll come to you for that, the final shot, the, 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 the Mordor current uh, update reveal and then maybe the music if you want to talk about that as well mm-hmm. oh that that was a, a a chilling moment that i thought was actually beautifully done from the moment of coming out of the eye of um sauerbrand not don't really know what to call him yet um and then getting the vista in front of him and the music going on in the background and then fading out with the song coming over the top of it I think we've been left with something that would make me want to come back for season two because it was haunting, it was uncomfortable, it was, you know, a kind of challenging, if you like, in the same way that uh, I love the fact you've pointed to Gollum's song there at the end of The Two Towers, because, you know, this is not the end of the story. So we need to want to go on to the next season. Uh, and I think that they they pulled me along with that. It was quite emotive, that moment. So, yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was really well done. And also, if you look at the colour saturation, um, of the visuals then you've got lots of different greys lots of different blacks going on so you've got um, almost like colour is leached out of the landscape at that point uh, and I thought that was a really wonderful visual to go along with um, that really unsettling music going over the top of it mm. and it was kind of like that distorted almost mirror of the end of the Fellowship of the Ring movie of you know, as well, that last shot of Sam and Frodo standing on top of, you know, the ridge and seeing Mordor in the distance. And it's, it's, but it's giving you two very different emotions, isn't it? Because, you know, Frodo's saying, Sam, I'm glad you're, you're here with me. And, uh, and then we get what I loved about the shot of, um, Halbrand Sauron is that they didn't make him keep a neutral expression. There is this smile on his face that says, oh, Adar thought he was doing his own plan. Oh, thank you. You have now <laughs> actually given me my plan. Thank you very much. I will be taking that. And I think what's interesting about that smile is that one of the things I've been thinking about why they set up Adar the way they did is because I think they want to have not a sympathetic villain, but a complex, nuanced, nuanced villain who rules through a certain amount of love and loyalty. And so I really liked that through that they were able to explore the whole kind of idea of the origins of orcs, Tolkien's own kind of philosophical conundrum about that. But then they're going to be able to cut that Gordian knot in season two by saying, well, Sauron doesn't see them as beings. Sauron sees them as fleshy machines for his war. And he's not going to rule by being a father to them. He is going to, you know, run dominion over them as a master and a lord. And so I think that smile on his face, it's, it's a smile about everything. He's thinking, I've got my base, I've got my army, and I am about to go and take what's mine. And I just, I liked the menace in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I like the fact that when he was talking to Galadriel uh, earlier, when she says, but you fought alongside me, he said, against your enemy and mine. So we've had those moments between Adar and Halbrand in uh, earlier episodes. Uh, Adar claims that he killed Sauron. What actually went on between the two of them? Hopefully we're going to get some answers to that. Mm. Um, you know, that moment when, when Halbrand stares down at him and says, do you remember me? 
And, and Adar says, no, but does he really not remember him? Or, you know, what mm. is going on? So many other things that I want answered. There's going to be a clash between Adar and Sauron, and only Sauron is going to win that clash, absolutely. But what's going to happen to Adar? Um, and you're right, Harry, Adar has a different attitude to the orcs than the one that Sauron will have. Uh, and I think that what we did learn from Adar, um, that I think he was really telling the truth about, was that he hated how Sauron was just using up these orcs that he thought of as his children. Uh, and he wasn't going to, he said, sacrifice any more of his children to Sauron's ambition. Um, and then back comes Sauron and he is going to do plenty with these uh, orcs that will be um, disregarding them as having any kind of heart or names of their own. He won't care about names and things like that. They're simply um, parts of the cogs in the wheel, if you like. Mm. So mm. I'm looking forward to seeing in season two what happens between Adar and Sauron um, and also the orcs themselves. How will they respond to Sauron? So That'd I think there's a lot to happen there. Sure. And it's, I think we know that this series has been quite good at setting up these mysteries and who is a stranger, who is Halbrand, things like that. But you rightly pointed on there that they've set up other little small questions that are going to leave us uh, intrigued and interested and wanting to know what's going to happen in season two. So uh, I'm really glad that they've given us, you know, a definite Sauron, that they've given us a stranger is definitely uh, one of the Astari. Um, still holding out hope for a blue wizard, but uh, it's sort of fading away as, <laughs> as the time goes on. But um, we haven't got that completely sure yet. And then we've got lots of the questions, like you just said there, that we don't have any answers to at all, such as the ones of what happened. What was the relationship between uh, Halrand and Adar back in the day? So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that as well. So I think that's probably enough to talk about on that first story. Now, we're going to try and get through the other stories a lot more quickly than that but uh, that was definitely uh, there was a lot to go that through was the there. big one yeah, congratulations was... to both of you for, uh, <laughs> for for getting through that that was quite tough so we're going to maybe jump to maybe the shortest story now which was the Numenor story which again we're going to go through this very quickly because not a whole pile happened first of all we get to see um, Aarian and what she's doing there she's um She's, uh, you know, got this project going on where uh, Farazan is like, okay, you can come in, you can sketch the king and we're going to be designing his tomb and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually when she's in there one-on-one uh, -on -one with the king, the king actually, you know, says, okay, you can go up and check out this palantir that I have going upstairs and, uh, you know, um, have a go of it basically, uh, which was... I mean, fine. I'm saying, okay, that's grand. I don't really mind what they're doing with um, Arian's character. I don't know how that's going to go, but it seems like... Now, I was of the opinion that Arian was going to be... She was going to break away from the faithful and she was going to be very in the opposite camp. That was going to create division in uh, the family uh, against Elendil and Isildur. And, um, and that was going to just be sort of more tension inside the family. And um, I don't know. It seems like maybe now that she, if she looks into the Palantir, she might go back and join uh, join up with her father uh, as one of the faithful again. So uh, I'll come back and you can uh, give me your opinions on all that later on. But also then we jump to the scene of Elendil and, um, Muriel. and Muriel in the boat. And they kind of have this sort of, they both sort of come out to each other as in, we are the faithful. We are, you know, we're having this moment of, yes, we are actually, you know. Um, so... 
uh, that was kind of nice that they've finally said it openly that this is what we believe. And I know Elendil had a kind of a moment of doubt in the last episode where it seemed like he turned away from the faithful. And I, I kind of called it last week. I was saying, I'm really hoping that next week, that was just one moment of doubt. It was the same day that his son had apparently died. So I'm going to give him a pass on that and say, okay, next, next episode opens up. He's already kind of said, okay, look, I need to just continue along this road of being one of the faithful. I'm getting over, you know, it's a moment of grief. You have to allow him that. And so now it seems like he's going to just keep going down this path. And he says, you know, I, it's it's a heavy price to pay, but now we need to just keep, keep following it. So I like to see that as well. I like to see his conversation with Muriel. And I just think that, again, Lloyd Owens is, uh, he's been doing a fantastic job of Valendial all season so far. So, um, Sarah, what was your thoughts on those things, maybe on Elendil's performance on that uh, moment that he shared with Muriel? I think he's allowed to have had that moment of doubt um, because as he does say when he's talking to Muriel and he's talking about the price that must be paid for being one of the faithful, that that price can be very, very high and losing his son in that way. Remember, he's already lost his wife, however long ago that was. Um, he seems to be estranged from his other son. And now we have uh, Isildur ostensibly dead. Um, I think he's allowed a moment of doubt um, and it's not surprising that he that he had that. Uh, when it comes to his response though, to Muriel, I see the real Ellen Deal re reasserting himself. He is absolutely down to his core, one of the faithful. As he says to her, my name doesn't just mean one who loves the stars. It's more than just his own simple life, if you like. It's bigger than him. Um, and so he agrees with her when she talks about how, you know, to be one of the faithful is, is to just accept that that price may be high and to keep going, um, hoping that the end is worth it. And he says, well, we must make the end worth it. So I think he's moved from that absolute darkness of the mind grief that we saw last episode, which I think is perfectly natural in, in any parent anyway, mm -hmm. um, to wanting to make his son's death mean something uh, and to continue being a part of what he needs to do as one of the faithful to kind of honor that in mm -hmm. some ways, but also because being one of the faithful is just, it's so much bigger than just him. So that's what I thought from the uh, the conversation. And he's absolutely the Queen's man as well. And that's mm -hmm. going to be interesting when they get home because yeah. uh, there's going to be all manner of tensions there when uh, Muriel comes back and says, yes, I know that we've lost lots and lots of our uh, young people who died in the Southlands for reasons that don't seem particularly clear to all of you and I know that I'm blind and my father is dead but we now need to raise another army and go back right now yeah and how yeah. is that going to play out I wonder especially I mean that scene where Farazon is looking down at the body of Tar Palantir and that look on his face I mean I love Tristan Gravel's portrayal of Farazon I think he's wonderful and I'm not unhappy about the Welsh accent that comes out on a regular basis when he's giving a bit of speech. I think that's also wonderful. But that look on his face when he's looking down at Tar Palantir, and then when Muriel comes home and she is blind, 
this is Farazon's moment. I see this is where it's all going to begin. So enough from mm. me. I'd love to hear from Harry now. Yeah. Harry. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would just echo everything you said about Elendil. I don't think I can add anything there except to agree wholeheartedly with it. I will say my takeaway from the Farazon scene that I thought was really interesting, and it reminded me of Tristan Gravel's answer at Comic-Con when he was asked about the character. And he said, you know, when Farazon walks through Numenor and sees all the buildings and the stonework, he sees his legacy in stone. And so it was great to then have that come out when he's talking about building um, a tomb for uh, Tarplantir. And obviously there's this reference to the idea of, you know, men as they kind of fell away from the light and the Valar building tombs greater, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what I thought was most interesting about that performance was that I think there was genuine sadness in his eyes about Palantir dying. And I also think it goes to the core of the way both maybe less so with the way Tolkien writes it, because we just don't get inside the head of Farazon as much. But I think the way the show is portraying it is that Farazon is going to be someone obsessed with his own mortality. And I think when he sees Palantir, you know, in the process of dying, he's thinking about him. And yes, he's thinking about his potential political gain, but he's also thinking, you know, how many years have I got? How much more time do I have? And what can I do about that? And what can I do with that time? I will say the one thing I didn't like about this part of the episode is that I think it's such a missed opportunity not to have the emotional beat of Elendil breaking the news news to Aarian. I'm interested to see what they do with this whole plot line with the Palantir. I still think she's going one of two ways. She's either building uh, Sauron's temple to Morgoth yeah. in yeah. two seasons' time, or she's going to become a ringwraith in a very kind of darkly ironic way for one of Isildur's family members to be a ringwraith. Um, I, I see nothing but darkness in her future. But yeah. I, I would have liked to have that emotional... Um, I would have liked to have that emotional beat because for me, that's where the show has been at its strongest. And, you know, I think they missed an opportunity when the Numenorean army left by clearly cutting out a scene where Aarian begs Isildur or Elendil not to go. There was clearly a scene cut there. And I think then to miss the emotional beat on return of her not getting to see her brother, of not seeing Volandil tell uh, uh, Ontimo's fiance that he's not coming back. That, that for me, that because mm. like you'll never hear me on Twitter be like, they changed this one aspect of the law. Like it's an mm. adaptation. I accepted it before it started. But what you will see me complain about is where you miss emotional beats. And for me, yeah. that was that was almost criminally negligent. And I feel the same about Isildur's absence from the episode, honestly. I think that's, I know why they've done it to, you know, add the suspense for the general audience. But for me, it's just like, I I didn't need that. I wanted I wanted the emotional beats there. So yeah, but small complaint. But that's where it is. Well, this Which is this is why it could have been another. There could have been another episode on top, like an episode nine and episode ten. They they that's wedged exactly so much. Say. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There was there was too much to wedge into this one episode, and we said it before the episode started. Yeah, actually, when they show the like you know previously on the Rings of Power or whatever, we mm. were kind of saying, Jesus, they have to wedge a lot into this episode. We we need answers for a lot of big things and a lot of things that we just expect they gave themselves too much to do yeah in the last episode yeah and i think again I, it's very strange that now there's going to be a season break where we're the you know the audience are going to think that Isildur is dead and i think we don't need that i don't think anybody needs that if anybody's mm. seen like you know the the introduction to the first movie you know that that's not true so we just 
it's not going to have that same emotional weight. I think that I agree with you, Harry. I think that the decision to have him be killed was only just to see the emotional effect that that was going to have on Elendil, which I really loved in last week's episode. I loved his uh, his performance. But I agree as well that if they had breaking the news to, uh, to uh, Aarian as well, that would have been fantastic as well. And as you said as well, just all the others, like the, I mean, any mother who's been told your son's been killed in battle or any fiance who's been told that your, your, uh, your fiance is not coming home, things like that. So, and those, those few characters that we have been introduced to, it would have been really great to see that emotional weight attached to that as well. So yeah, um, maybe a bit of a missed opportunity there. So that's a bit of a, a little bit disappointing. And we, but we do have this sort of um, feeling of tension of what's going to happen in season two. Rory casting our minds ahead to that. And now we know that the king is dead. I also agree that I thought I saw in Farazan's face a little bit of sadness. It looked like I was like, I don't, is that a tear in his eye? I, I, I don't know if I was going to go that far, but Tire-pelling it looked tear. like... <laughs> Uh, it looked like he was genuinely a little bit sad to see this this uh, this ruler and this king yeah. pass away. Was he sad at the death of the king, or was he sad at seeing death? Mm, uh, I, I think point. it might be the second one um, because in this episode we got the first actual mention of immortality. Um, they haven't talked about it before in Numenor at all, but here when he uh, he says that we must craft for him a tomb. Um, and within this stone will be the only immortality that he will have because no one, not even a king, is actually mortal. I think Harry is right. I think this is Farazon's um, absolute obsession that we're going to see come through, hopefully, in season two. But I think that the emotion on his face is not for Tar Palantir as a person, but Mm. as a representation of what happens to all of the mortal races. Sure. In my and actually, no, that's actually a good point. And when you started saying that, I was going to say, well, surely he's had maybe loved ones or family members who have died before. But I suppose being in the room with a person who is literally on death's door is a totally different emotion uh, as to one where you hear, oh, my, my neighbor passed away or something. You but know, also he's the king. He's the most powerful yeah. man in, in, in his eyes. So sure, sure. And not even he, him could, he couldn't escape death. So. Hmm. so that's what we have to look forward to in season two. And um, then the final story from today's was uh, of the Harfoots and of the Stranger. And we did get a little <laughs> big reveal as well. We actually get the name drop of the Istar. And uh, we get a now fully fluent Stranger in uh, the English language. He has absolutely no problems at all. I was a bit taken aback by that. But you're just like, okay, we'll just carry on. It's fine. Uh, oh, and- I thought that was though when the mystics were like, shooting their energy into him and then they made him learn stuff remember they were telling him about rune yeah and they were like we're going to teach you a lot i kind of felt like he started to remember a lot including westron or english or whatever language they're using however it was i'm just like (laughs) right fine let's just get on with the plot anyway let's just see what uh, however he develops but um and he does have some mannerisms that are very gandalfy but i'm just kind of hoping that that's just how all of the Istari are, and that's mm. how all of the wizards are. And especially at the end, when we get that fa- that big line drop where he says, "You know, uh, when in doubt, Eleanor, always follow your nose." And uh, I mean, but as both Dave and I said it to each other watching it, we were like, "Because we've been wanting him not to be Gandalf since the beginning of the show." But as soon as he said that, and we're like, "That's pretty much confirmed that he's Gandalf." We were both like, "I'm not mad at it. I'm just yeah. like, you know, uh, I kind of wanted like when he said." Uh, when, in doubt, when, when in doubt, when in doubt, Miss Brandyfoot, uh, Eleanor, Eleanor Brandyfoot, Brandy I was like, "Go on, say the line, Gandalf, do it." <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So that was quite nice as well. Yeah, and again, I think there's been lots of scenes and maybe they haven't really quite hit, uh, hit the nail on the head with the Harfoots in lots of scenes, but I thought in this one, some of the emotion, I really felt it. And I really felt like I was quite close to like the scene where Nori decides to leave. Uh, I really felt that. I mm. And it was quite emotional. And of course, she has that kind of moment with Poppy where Poppy's just like, all right, yeah, see you later. You're leaving. And then she goes away and then she runs back again. Um, it's kind of a bit typical and tropey, but I still, I, 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 you know, I kind of welled up a little bit. I was like, oh, that's really quite sad. He was blubbering on the couch. I was. I was a mess. <laughs> Dave had to hold me. Uh, so, um, yeah, that was like, I mean, that was really not, I think that that was one of the things I was really like, that's, as I said, that was one of the most, the strongest emotions that I felt during this entire episode. Um, Harry, how was your overall takeaway from the Harfoots and their story? Yeah, I mean, I was someone who, when they, we found out they were going to be included, I was like, oh, I get it, you know, appeal to mm. the mass market, give people hobbits, the people want hobbits, I get it, you know, fine, cool. And pretty much from episode one, I've I've loved every scene I had with them. I think they're one of the storylines that I pretty much wouldn't change anything. The only thing I would have changed is probably move up the introduction of the mystics because I think if we could have cleared the Harfoot storyline mostly by episode seven, episode eight could have had more time for Numenor, for Mordor, for the elves. Um, but having said that, they have consistently delivered some of the keenest emotional uh, moments for me i think the performances have been in a, in a cast full of very strong performances some of my favorites have been here i think you know i talked about this the other day but daniel wayman performing largely mute performing largely through his eyes his gestures his body language just uh phenomenal and i and i think that scene of the parting with uh nori's mother now saying yes go find where the sparrows learn their songs and you know no go and be bold don't be cautious mm. that yeah. for me that's you know really lovely and uh nori and poppy's parting got me very emotional but actually what got me most emotional was just the stranger being able to speak with 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 nori when they first had that conversation about the istar and being wise and what an adventure is because it reminded me of my favorite moments from the hobbit films which are you know they are what they are but my favorite moments from those films are whenever ian mckellen and martin freeman get share a scene and i instantly got that i was instantly like yes more of this in season two yes send nori with him absolutely because it's just it's it's perfect for me and i can't wait to see more I agree, though. I, I I tend to think we know it's Gandalf now. They might, they you know, we might hold out hope for a blue wizard, but I don't think you give the line about following your nose if you're then going to, you know, kind of double cross your general audience. But I could be wrong. I think that they could just be keeping people guessing for the general audience to go, oh, yeah, this guy, he's definitely Gandalf. And then they'll maybe in season two or season three, they'll actually teach the audience. Actually, there are more Astari out there. and There's these other guys called the blue wizards. And yeah. Kind of like Gandalf's cousin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, similar I, mannerisms. I did hear an interesting theory on Twitter when I was doing that uh, space this morning, and admittedly it was six in the morning, so if I'm misremembering, don't worry, sleep delirium. Um, but I think it was Tim Bolton uh, said, you know, what if actually the Blue Wizards are either already in Rune or will be following Gandalf to Rune? So it's, is it either a precursor or a successor? Because he's got more to learn. He he know he knew he wanted to head to Rune anyway. Let's not forget it wasn't the Mystics who gave him the idea. He was looking for those stars anyway. So is he going in search of the Blue Wizards, 
or is he going to scout out the area? I don't know. It's super interesting. Mm. But again, um, just the mention of Rune was also the thing that before I heard the line of follow your nose, I was like, definitely a blue wizard now. He's yeah. got to be a blue wizard. Yeah, when they, when they spoke of Rune, I was like, yes, this is good. The show is doing it. They're, yeah. they're announcing his <laughs> blue wizardness. And I was also thinking as well when I was like saying, if they decide that if he just suddenly turns around and says, okay, I will be the leader of these mystics. I will be evil. And I'm going to go to Rune and like form a cult. I was like, great. That would be a fantastic yeah. story. That would be a really cool story to see of this kind of evil Istari that's just kind of there uh, just bring, brings Nori along and then like Nori we're here let's <laughs> sacrifice people and you know burn their bodies and <laughs> worship Melkor <laughs> that would be interesting yeah, yeah that would be funny but we'd love to see how that would have gone but um, you never know um, I do have questions like why did the mystics think that he was Sauron what made them think that he was Sauron um, I mean they clearly have powers of their own. They were tracking him down, but they were convinced that he was Sauron. And they talked about how there'd been a veil placed over his mind when he was brought down. But I'd, I'm not quite there with why they thought he was Sauron. Then they get the sudden, oh, he's not Sauron after all. He's one of the other ones. He's an Istari. He is. And then, of course, we don't get the name because the stranger in. Did they say he's one of the other ones? I thought they said he is the other one. Oh, the yeah. other one. The so, other one. Which makes so, me think right. that obviously maybe Halbrand or Sauron arrived at the same time as this stranger. And so there was just two people arriving and the, the mystics knew that there were two people mm. and they, they, they followed this one and just assumed him to be. I think they Sauron. said, I don't think they said the other one. I think they said the Astar. That's all they said. They said, oh, he is the Astar. No, I, th oh, I, right, I okay. think they did say he is. They might have said other one, but I think they said he is the other. And I and I wondered whether that was like in terms of like, oh, he is the same type of being, but he is okay. the flip side. Yeah. And I, my, uh, my theory around like why they might have thought he was him. If you think about like maybe the limits of a human sorcerer's knowledge, you know, they've maybe read some signs, maybe they have a prophecy, maybe they have whatever. If they're looking for the signs of an immense being of great power, I mean, they're kind of, they're, you know, they're right if they're squinting. They found a Maya, they found the wrong Maya. And so mm -hmm. I wonder whether it's, you know, in the same way Waldreg thinks the. That's, that's yeah, what I was going to say. Not a Sauron confusion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he just, did he, say, like, this is a sign. Like, have you yeah. heard of him, lad? Yeah. The, you must have seen the fallen star. So, yeah. like, I mean, it, I think it, we just this assume. Must be a prophecy. <laughs> that's, just... that's, that's when I knew that the stranger was definitely not Sauron when Waldrig was like, oh, that's a sign. I was like, no, Waldrig has not said a correct sentence in his life. We are not believing <laughs> are anything Sauron, not? <laughs> So I've just looked up the actual quote because I did note it down. Uh, oh, nice. He is not Sauron. He is the other star he is ellipsis right <laughs> right so they say <laughs> the, the other, other that means to me other singular but yes the other seems to be mm. yeah it seems to me it's singular that's the definite article the not another he is the mm. other so they know there's two that's mm. that's what i'm understanding from that so mm. um that's yeah that's for me i i just found that striking that seems like because I also had, the, I was holding out hope that maybe he was one of the blue wizards, and that another blue wizard had arrived at another point, and we just did, we just saw like the 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 meteor flying overhead, but maybe there were two meteors flying in different directions, and we just didn't know which one we were following, and so there could be another one out there somewhere. But it seems like to me that sentence sounds like there are two beings that must have arrived 
one of them being this stranger and the other one being Sauron. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, any other points on that? Not really? Uh, no. Well, can I, can I just say, I liked the fight. I thought I was going to hate it. I thought we were about to have to watch like quite a lame magic battle. And I <laughs> liked how unnerving a lot of it was. The way the mystic kind of almost marionetted him with her staff or scepter. The way the flames were cast. The way, I mean, twice in the episode where she disguised herself. Um, Broody Sisson's mm, character. Oh, yeah. the, Brilliant. As well. I mean... Oh, pure horror. I mean, I, I, I know J.O. Biona and Charlotte Brandstrom have a horror background, but does Wayne Yip too, or did we just, you know, agree that this is a horror flick at the same time? Um, wonderful. And then I loved that even when not Gandalf banishes them in a sort of PG-13 way, we're like, we're going to disintegrate the bad guys into moths because kids yeah. are watching, you know. And I, <laughs> But I appreciated that. It was very beautiful and it PG-13. Was beautiful. Yeah, hmm. myself and Johnny were wondering what's the imagery behind there. Yeah, what is the significance? Is there any significance behind that at all? Or these butterfly moth? Yeah. Did, well, did all, that jump all out could, to you guys? All I could think of was the scenes from um, the Peter Jackson films with Gandalf and the moth, you know, whispering <laughs> into it. That was the only thing I could think of. Yeah, yeah, that was another like eyes oh, Gandalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I agree that the the fight scene was kind of cool, and I liked the little. Uh, again, we see Harfoots, they're pretty good, uh, like the Hobbits are as well. They're pretty good with a with a rock in their hand or a stone there, uh, and they're pretty accurate chucking them from uh, high up in the trees. So that was definitely nice uh, callback. Nice callback to Merry and Pippin up on Treebeard's shoulder as well. So, um, and the stranger has this moment where, he, where, again, as soon as I saw the mystic dropped staff, I was like, well, I'm pretty sure our new Gandalf character is going to pick up that staff and, you know, realize that he's even more powerful when he holds this staff. He can channel that as a conduit through uh, channel his power through that stuff and he does stand up and his line he says is, i am good <laughs> like i am groot and he just like <laughs> kills these two or kills yeah. these three characters and i thought that was kind of um, kind of cool um and yeah and then i then we come back to when at the grove and we have that we, we spoke about before the the scene of nori uh, deciding that she's gonna leave or she decides oh, no, i'm gonna stay and it's her mother that really pushes her and they've or the whole family they have the bag packed and they send her on her way and they say this is what you were born to do pretty much so that was really really good as well and i would say some of the most emotional scenes i agree with you harry that some of the most emotional scenes in this whole season were could have been with the harfoots i know a lot of them were with elrond and durin but some like the the the, the traveling song uh the wandering song that we got with the harfoots was really beautiful i felt that that was really emotional really impactful and again in this this leaving scene was really quite beautiful as well so um yeah pretty good in that and sarah i know you need to jump off at any moment so do you need to go right now if you do that's completely fine or you can I've hold off it's left before i have to go but I, I just want to mention let's not forget the death of sadok here sure oh yeah, yeah. because um this was a very emotional moment for me um i love the fact that marigold said you know hold still, we'll find a way of carrying you back. And all along, they've been about the left behinds. We don't carry people along with us. We can't do that because of our lifestyle. But she was all about, no, we will take you back. And I thought that was really interesting there because it's sort of refuting that idea that um, the Harfoots just leave those who can't travel. But then his death moment is so simple. Uh, You know, it's, it's all the more 
sad and tragic because of its simplicity. He wants to just watch the sun rising and the missus is waiting. There's no hmm. big mm. death speech or anything like that. It's just really, really simple. And I loved that. I thought that was really well done. And farewell, Lenny Henry, alas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will say that I thought that his posture was way too good for a dying man in that moment where it just showed them all sitting there staring at the at the sunrise and i was like he he should be kind of bent over or something but he was sitting with it like straight back and i was like oh well maybe he just dies with the grace that he lived with as well so uh, maybe that I could thought, be fitting I thought well. when the camera panned back a little bit i thought you would just see him go yeah I know, <laughs> yeah he might just yeah. but, uh, really no. nice and peaceful and then well <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry harry i cut you off there no, I was just going to say there is a beautiful, and I think what this show has done, sorry, what the show has done really well across season one is start to lay the groundwork for the casual audience about how to think about mortality and immortality in Middle Earth. We've already seen that there starts to be debates among the Numenorians. We've seen that, you know, uh, the Elder Dorin, King Dorin, refers to the elves trying to cheat death, referring to their own extended lifespan. And so then it's really nice to have that contrast with these other mortal beings for whom death is a part of their existence. They're a migratory, very much endangered people. And so to have that acceptance of death is going to be a great contrast both against, uh, you know, the elves preserving their own light and then the men of Numenor seeking to enhance their life. And so I really like that. And I also, as, as Sarah said, I just love the understatement of it. It is an acceptance. It is just this letting go. And I like that we didn't even really see him die, if you know what I mean. He, we, we were not forced to watch. And I think there is always value in filmmaking of knowing when to cut away. And I think the Rings of Power has known to do that, known when to do that, both with the horror and with the beauty. And I and I really appreciated that. Mm. Beautiful sentiment. Yeah, lovely. So I think that basically pretty much sums up this. We went on a little bit longer than we had expected. Sorry if uh, we're boring anyone out there, but hey, there was a lot to break down in this episode. And I have to say a huge thank you to our two guests. And again, apologies to you both if we kept you for longer than we had expected. But uh, thank you so much for your amazing insights. It's been really, really nice to actually uh, break this final episode down with uh, two uh, fantastic people like yourselves so we really want to give you guys another uh, huge thank you and of course remember to all of our listeners you will find both harry and sarah's information down in the description you'll find their links and please go check them out on the on twitter on the daily rings of power go follow uh sarah as well on twitter and follow and listen to her on the uh, the rings of power wrap-up podcast uh, can't uh, say anything higher than that it's just absolutely fantastic that show so um also, anything else you guys would like to finally give your final points on this? Or do you think... Or plug anything? Anything else you want to plug? I'll come to you first, Sarah. Um, well, let me plug Signum University for a start. Um, if you want to continue doing stuff with Tolkien in between now and goodness knows when we're going to get season two, um, we have some lovely one month long courses um, that often have lots and lots of Tolkien stuff in them. Uh, and um, they're not 
you know, the, the hugely academic kind of thing that we do with our master's degree program. They're fun, they're interesting, they're lively, they're chatty. Uh, I've got one coming up in December that is on the fall of Numenor, for example. So mm. it's timed to go with the release next month of Brian Sibley's new book on the fall mm. of Numenor. So if you're interested at all, then go and find uh, at Signum U on Twitter and then click on the link in their bio and it will take you to our website and then look for our space program, Signum Portal for Adult Continuing Education, because we're nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure to have you on uh, and hopefully we get to see you again soon. Um, yes. and um me on you're very very welcome very welcome. very welcome it's been a pleasure um and uh harry come to you anything else you want to plug as well uh well i firstly want to say thank you again so much for having me on um it's great to actually chat to you guys not just over twitter and also sorry you as well i know we, we we've we've talked briefly on twitter before but so much better to have these sorts of conversations Definitely. as for plugging myself um i may be deciding to have my third twitter space in 24 hours this evening um because <laughs> i have an issue in my life and it's called the rings of power um so if you if you want to hear more this will have already happened by the time the podcast comes out don't worry about that. Actual thing to plug. Um, people may think I may be going away in the off season. I am not. I have so much planned for the podcast. We're going to do story arc reviews for each character. We're going to do resume reviews of cast and crew looking back at their old films and TV. We're going to look at The Fall of Numenor when that comes out. And I hope to have lots of lovely guests on and an open invitation to everyone on this call because I'd love to return the favor and speak with you again. But yes, follow me at Daily ROP and come talk about how beautiful Charles Edwards is as Kelly Brimble. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. If you heard of him, lad? If you heard of sour Excellent, fantastic. Well, that's it for this week's episode, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, please get in touch. Let us know what your thoughts are on this final episode and on the ep on the season as a whole. We can now finally make our judgments on full uh, season one so that's nice uh, so please get in the comments let us know what you think go follow these two uh, fantastic guests that we've had again I can't speak more highly uh, than I am of these people and uh, as always thank you so much to our patrons and we will see you guys next week bye goodbye mm -hmm.